Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WAPE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wright, says thank you for listening. For his statue of David, Michelangelo used Carrara marble. Other sculptors have worked with alabaster, clay, bronze, and wood. Imagine a life-sized likeness of a person made out of cake. Well, Cake Likes is a new cake competition series on Discovery Plus. The show challenges bakers to create life-sized cake replicas of famous celebrities. And two Atlanta bakers, Christina Bjorn and Tasha Taylor, are part of the competition. They are the dynamic duo known as Bake Girl Magic, and they'll tell us the sweet story later this hour. We'll also hear from the author of a young adult book, Above the Rim, How Elgin Baylor Changed Basketball. First, when you hear Appalachia, People of color are not in the images that come to mind. Afrolatia refers to people of African-American heritage who are native to or live in the Appalachians. Chris Aluka Berry is a photographer who has documented the life of Afrolatians mostly in the southern part of the Appalachian Mountains, in an effort to bring awareness to their culture and dignity. His works are on view now on the Atlanta Beltline's West Side Trail, part of the regional edition of the National Public Art Exhibition known as The Fence. He joins us now via Zoom, Chris Aluka Berry, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thank you so much. I am uh, so happy to be here with you. It's just such a beautiful thing. It, it really has been a, uh, a struggle to, to get the word out there, to really change people's mindset of when they think of Appalachia and to really let them know what, what a diverse landscape it really is. So thank you so much. Well, you certainly are adding to that awareness. 
How did you learn about the Afrolatian people? You know, it's a really interesting story. Um, I was working as a photojournalist um, at the state newspaper in South Carolina, uh, which at one time was a, a really great newspaper. And I had a friend who lived in Georgia and she was in college with a young lady um, who was an African-American woman. And she was telling my friend about her family in the North Georgia mountains and um, how they had been there for over 100 years. And I've been hiking and camping in the mountains ever since I was a teenager. And I just never saw much diversity while I was up there. So this really intrigued me. And I started trying to do some searches online and I just didn't find any visual representation. Everything that I found pretty much just showed white folks. So I was on assignment for Reuters and I was in Tocoa, Georgia, and I started asking around different folks. And then somehow the word got around to a woman named Marie Cochran, who's a who's a great friend now. And she started the Afrolatchian Artist Project and she actually reached out to me. And she was the first person that told me about the word Afrolatchia, um, which was which was actually invented by a gentleman by the name of Frank X. Walker in the 1990s. He was the uh, first African-American poet laureate of uh, Kentucky. Marie and I, in 2016, she took me to a small town in western North Carolina called Cullowee, North Carolina, and went to this little small church. There were maybe six people at the service, and uh, the folks just welcomed me in, and I started photographing. And the eldest woman there, a beautiful woman by the name of Louise Allen, Miss May Louise Allen. She was 93 years old and I photographed her with her sister and I made plans to come back. Um, in, in, I was going to come back in three weeks to interview her and make more photos. And within that time, she passed away. And that's when I realized that not only is the Afrolatian culture something that a lot of people don't know about, but unfortunately, it is a culture that is fading away. A lot of communities are disappearing in the in the four and a half years I've been working on this project. Twelve people I photographed have passed away. And young people just aren't remaining. Yes, ma'am. It's the same for the white folks as well. You know, folks leave the rural areas to pursue jobs, better opportunities. There's a lot of different reasons why people leave the mountains. And, And then, of course, there's reasons why certain people stay. And the people that stay really are connected to the land. There's just so many fabulous stories I could share with you, Lois. Uh, stories of Black communities that were completely self-sufficient. Uh, stories of African-Americans owning entire mountainsides. Folks being so successful that they were hiring white folks to come do their laundry rather than vice versa. It is really a part of American history that I think a lot of people would really love to learn about. Sure. I read that you grew up in a biracial family in South Carolina. How did your background inform the way you photograph these families? Yeah, my father is black and my mother is white. And I look like a white guy. My my brother looks like a black man. And we experienced a lot of racial persecution Um by a lot of different races all, all throughout my childhood. And when I became a photojournalist and I found the power of the photograph and I found how, how strong an image can be, I really started wanting to work on projects that kind of flip stereotypes. And so 
for me, this project is really kind of hopefully changing the stereotype that, that we have of Appalachia. Going into these mountains, I have met so many biracial families in the mountains. Because the African community is so small, and obviously you can't marry within your family, there's a lot of multiracial families. It's really a beautiful thing. But throughout the 20 years I've been a photojournalist, I've always sought to tell stories that kind of help expel those stereotypes when when we're looking at race. Mm. PBS has a new documentary series called The Black Church. Recently, I spoke with the producer-director, Shayla Harris, about this series, and she said the Black Church has been the center of the community that provided not just the spiritual home, but also a political space, economic space, and it was the first home of education. Does that compare with what you found gathering stories of the Afro-Latian people? Most definitely. Most definitely. You um, you hit the nail on the head. That is 100% true. The church is a place of refuge and, and has been I mean, for, for more than 100 years in, in the mountains. And, and most definitely. And that, when I go into a new community, I always start at the church. And that has really been a There's a term that we use in photojournalism called a a passport person, that person that you can build trust with that in turn can introduce you to people that they have trust with. And and I'll tell you another thing. It's really amazed me the faith, just the faith that so many people have. There's a great song by a gospel singer. I believe her name is Ida Turner. And it says, Lord, Lord, don't move my mountain, but give me the strength to climb. And I have heard that song sung at different churches in the mountains. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's really inspirational, but definitely the, the church is a place of refuge. It's a place where people can come, where people can be free, where people can help each other. And of course, like you said, so many years ago, it was a place of education and it was a place where, where folks could feel safe. You mentioned that the church has been your passport to many of the people you've photographed, along with depicting daily life in the Appalachian Mountains. You also showcase some more somber experiences, such as funerals. How did you develop relationships and trust with these people that enabled you to capture those deeply personal moments? You know, I'll tell you the truth. That's really the hardest part of my job. Making photos is kind of the easy part, but it's it's building the trust and, and getting the access. And, you know, really, I think it it comes down to the golden rule, treating people the way you want to be treated, um, being upfront with people telling them why you're there. And, you know, every community I go into, I'm, I'm real upfront. I'll, I'll say, Hey, look, you know, unless you're from the mountains, you really don't know the diversity that, that is up here. And it's real important to me that, that, that change, I have actually had people call me and invite me to photograph their father's funeral, their grandfather's funeral. Once people found out that what I was doing, because this is as much a a photojournalism project, an art project, but it's really a project of preserving this history. And so people have invited me in. And I'll tell you, I have photographed so many funerals in my life 
so many soldiers coming back from war and different things over the years to where I feel like we're, we're almost the closest to life when we're at a funeral. And it's a place where where you can make really powerful images and it, it crosses all divides. It crosses all cultures. We can all relate to what it feels like to lose a loved one, you know? And I think it's those universal things that, that, um, that bring us together, but it takes time. And, and that's why I really enjoy spending multiple years working on a project rather than just, just flying in on a daily assignment and, and leaving. I feel like that, that is the key is building that trust. And then I share the photos. You know, after I photograph, I'll make small prints and I give them to the families. And, and I've had people reach out to me and, and want to use photos for the obituary and, and different things along those lines. And I've had people, you know, say, you know, you, you just captured the essence of my grandfather. And these are the last photos that we have of him. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very powerful. And I'm very thankful to have built that trust. I can see why. Please tell us about your photos along the Atlanta Belt Line's West Side Trail. As you can imagine, I I've have thousands and thousands of photos and I, you know, I'm hoping to do a book. I'm still seeking funding for a book and I really want to have the photos go in different museums and become part of their permanent collections because that's really where it needs to live. But on the fence, there are five photographs. They are all from North Georgia. Several of them are from a camp meeting. There's a camp meeting, Lois, in White County, Georgia that has been taking place since 1886. It takes place on the same plot of land under the same arbor that was built by freed slaves. And their ancestors meet every year for a weekend of fellowship. And I will go up there and I set up my tent and I camp out. And um, several of the photos are from there. It, it truly is a sacred, sacred ground. And then there are other photos from a, a family, the Jenkins family in Cleveland, Georgia. Uh, one photo is of a Timmy Joe Jenkins who invited me to photograph his father's funeral and actually spent time with him and his mother the morning of. I went to their home and documented what that day was like. And then about a month later, Timmy Joe was cleaning out his uh, father's garage. And it was a very emotional time for him and uh one of the photos is from that as well. So yeah, it's, it's just a small, small glimpse. And, and even my website is a small glimpse. So, you know, hopefully I'll be able to, to, to get funding to, to really show the bigger picture. Can you talk a bit about the Fence Project and how you got involved? You know, the, the photography community here in Atlanta is really beautiful and people are always um, trying to help each other and look out for each other. And um, I did a talk at a, a group called ATL Photo Night uh, several years ago and showed some of the photos and made some contacts. And um, I had had some different people just encourage me to enter it, to submit my photos. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not a big fan of contests and things like that, but I felt like I should do it. And uh, they were actually offering a reduced rate because of uh, COVID. So it wasn't very expensive to submit my photos. And it, it was really um, from other people telling me about it and, and encouraging me to do so. I'm curious, you talked about some of the prejudice you encountered. It sounded like a fair amount of it with your brother being dark complected and your being light complected. 
it sounds like an idyllic community that you have found in these towns of Afrolatia. Are these people not afraid of persecution? Do they not encounter it? You mentioned interracial marriages. I'm just curious. Well, you know, unfortunately, racism is is still alive and well. I mean, just recently, there was a situation where a man used the the N-word in a public place. And actually, in this town, the police force stood up for the African-American man that was being persecuted. Gentleman by the name of Cecil Dorsey, you know, told me stories of, you know, back in the 60s with the KKK showing up on his front doorsteps. But he could tell who each man was by the shoes that he was wearing. And he came out on the front porch with his shotgun in his hand and said, hey, you guys might might kill me, but I'm going to take a couple of you couple of you down with me. And and they left his house. And and obviously that was a that was a good while ago. But at the camp meeting, there's these little makeshift tents that folks call them where people can stay out of the elements when they come to stay for the weekend. And some of those tents were burned down several years ago. And in the middle of doing the camp meeting, there were guys driving by with rebel flags hanging out of their windows. And one time someone came and carved KKK in the podium where the preacher preaches from, you know, and that's stuff that happened within the past 15 years. So it it still happens. But, you know, the, the people that remain, they love the land they are very strong. And, and I'll also say that I have seen beautiful relationships between the uh, white folks and black folks in the mountains. I mean, I almost feel like race relations are better in the mountains than they are here in Atlanta sometimes. Really? Yeah, it's really interesting because you have to lean on your neighbor. People have learned how to coexist in the mountains for so long because the mountains are so isolated. And I'll say this. The folks I have found up there, they identify as much with being Appalachian as they do with being African-American. In some church services, the preacher will be making references to Patsy Cline and, you know, just all of these different things that you would think are mainly a part of white culture. It's a beautiful hybrid, and, and that's what really makes it a unique part of American culture. Photographer Chris Aluka Berry a selection of his photographs of the Afrolatian people is part of the 2020 Georgia Fence Exhibition. It's on view on the Atlanta Beltline's West Side Trail through June. You can find more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Whenever Elgin played... 
people stopped what they were doing and watched. That refrain appears throughout the young adult book, Above the Rim, How Elgin Baylor Changed Basketball. Jen Bryant is the author of the book. The illustrations are by Frank Morrison. They're with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you very much. Thank you. Given his role in sports, as well as his role in 20th century American history, it's surprising that the name and story of Elgin Baylor aren't better known. How did this book come about? Well, you're right about that. Given his major contribution both on and off the court, it is surprising. And really, over the course of my uh, writing career, which is now going on three decades, that's really become my mission, is to find underknown, under-celebrated individuals who have contributed in some large way to their field. I've done artists and I've done inventors and musicians and poets, but Elton Baylor is the first athlete. And for me, Lois, really, I don't have a, a, a hard and fast line between art and athletics. I've always been interested in the creative artistic side of sports, uh, both as a participant and as a fan. So I've always been on the lookout for individuals who, you know, who have changed the aesthetic of their sport. And uh, about seven years ago, I was reading a biography of Julius Irving, who, if you'll know, is a uh, 76ers player, former 76ers player. And um, in it, he recounted a time when he was a young man and had a serious knee injury and was in a hip to ankle cast and could do nothing but lay on the couch and watch television. And one day he sees Elgin Baylor playing and it something, it gives him an, an epiphany really. And he begins to mentally rehearse how he will one day play the game of basketball based on the modeling that he sees before him in Elgin Baylor, the this above the rim type of, of play. And he delights in the artistry and the creativity. And so when I'm reading that as a biographer, I'm thinking, hmm, that's interesting. I, you know, I know a little bit about Elgin Baylor. Let me poke around a little bit more. So I listened to audio recordings. I watched a lot of videotape, um, read books, magazines, older sports magazines, and just built up a mountain of information about his early life. And then, of course, his, his action in 1959 when he uh, boycotted the game in Charleston, West Virginia, to protest uh, racial discrimination. So it came along slowly, as most of these things do, but it was uh, a wonderful uh, a story that really needed to be told for young people. Would you talk about how you use the story of Elgin Baylor's life to correspond with milestones in the civil rights movement? Sure. I mean, um, his action uh, in, on January 16th, 1959, um, where his uh, Minneapolis Lakers, he was, he was the first 
first year player. He was a rookie NBA player. And in those days, the NBA only had eight teams. And it was, you know, fascinating to imagine the kind of, of travel and lives that they they had much, much different than today. And they didn't really have a big fan base. But Elgin was really the star of the team, but he was turned away at uh, the hotel when they got to uh, West Virginia and also turned away at restaurants. And uh, that was enough. He said, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, they can't just let me out of a cage like an animal to play the game and not treat me like a human being the rest of the time. And this was, it was important in the book as I'm writing the text to make sure that it was clear that other things that off the court outside of athletics, Rosa Parks, the uh, Wichita, Kansas food counter uh, sit-ins and protests, the desegregation of schools in the South. Um, it's important to that young people know the context of what was happening in, in at the same time and that this you know, this was part of a, a larger movement of athletes and non-athletes, um, but he was really the first pro athlete to stage a boycott. So all the modern day, you know, protests and boycotts and kneeling at games that you see today really echoes back to this, to Elgin Baylor sitting out the game in West Virginia. Yeah. Frank, your dedication in the book reads, to all the children who love basketball as much as I love painting. Your illustrations are wonderful. And I love the picture where Elgin is airborne. And part of the text reads, in one smooth move like a plane taking off, he would leap higher and higher and higher, as if pulled by some invisible wire. Would you describe the picture you created for that? Oh, wow. The page you're describing, it's, it's, it's what we're talking about. Uh, the pri- we have to go back to the prior page. And that is a page of the, a group of young individuals coming together, and they're debating. So I would call this the great debate. And in this debate, they're going back and forth about bragging about who's better and who's this and who can do that and who can do this. And then out of the blue, if you look further back, you peer back, you see Elgin. He's doing a little crossover and coming up, coming up approaching this, this group of, of braggers and, and trash talkers. You know, you have to tr- talk trash. And, and <laughs> you just have to. And so instead of participating, he proves them all wrong. He goes over everyone. He goes over the gossip. He goes over the naysayers. And he flies through the air. And he does this wonderful finger roll that he just drops off gently into the hoop. And you have the background. You have the sun at his back. And it's a silhouette. And he's just coming. You have a little bit of that basketball hoop in the background. And he's just soaring above everyone. And that's just making sure that he... And I believe this picture shows that he was different then, even on the court, you would have seen it. He may not have participated in all that all that back and forth, John. Of course, you're going to do it while you're on the court, but off the court, it's, it doesn't make any sense. It's you prove who you are on the court. And I think that's what this picture shows. You also have a sun behind him. It, it has a halo effect, almost like an angel. Oh, yes. Yes. 
And it's where H used the son. I'm gonna play off of that. And I believe it's for all the fathers and sons and and the people behind us that we're we're walking ahead of with our talents. We're all walking, we're all using what we grew up with. And we're always we're using our background, our family background, our heritage and our talents that were brought up. I, my talent came from my mother and my my grandfather were were artists. And so when you put the sun in the background, it's just you're moving forward. We're moving forward. And that's what I feel like it does. Beautiful. Throughout the book, we see examples of Elgin Baylor's quiet dignity. Was he as humble in real life? Yes, I think he was and is. Yes, he did. Uh, he did not. He liked to have his play speak for him. And it wasn't that he couldn't be chatty. I mean, if you, uh, you know, read the interviews with his uh, fellow players when they were traveling and whatnot, he was, he was very talkative and a storyteller. But, you know, on, on the court, he preferred to let his play speak for him. And he really eschewed any sort of anyone making a big deal about how he could play and what he could do. I mean, even when you watch the film reels, when he's being interviewed after he retired and they, you know, they have, they're interviewing Elgin Baylor as he's watching his own film reels and they're saying, wow, look look at what you could do. He will just say, well, you know, there were probably other people who could do these things, but I don't know, you know, I just, that, that's just what came to me at the time. So he's, he's, he's very, uh, as we say in the book, it was, it felt spontaneous to him. And he, uh, he was just a wonderful player, a wonderful artist on the court. And I do think he uh, continues to be as humble to this day as he ever was back then. He is 86 years old now. Is he aware that you wrote this book? We have sent it to him, Yes. <laughs> Oh, I hope you get a response. I hope so, too. I hope so, too. Well, I will say I went to the Naismith uh, Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield, Massachusetts, and highly recommend that as a trip. The folks there were, were very generous with the information, and I had spent some wonderful time really getting immersed in early NBA history up there. NBA milestones in mid-20th century American history, all depicted in this book. Frank, I was hoping you would talk about the pictures you created of Rosa Parks and the group at the lunch counter sitting and being harassed as they quietly protested. Well, I just feel when I do have opportunities to paint our civil rights heroes, really, I just feel blessed. And I wanted to do the best I can, particularly on these images, because I hold them with high respect. Particularly with Rosa, I wanted to show she did get in good trouble, as John would say. And so as I painted her, she didn't look uh, apologetic for what happened. She looks stern. She Yes, it is. A, it's a very distinct portrayal of her. It almost brought to mind Confucius or some Chinese philosopher, you know, I guess her nonviolent protest. Yes, yes. yes. And, and, and what I also did is I love to play whenever I can 
pull that urban restoration or that mannerism into it. I use spray paint and oil on this canvas. And that way I can pull in, draw a lot of the, uh, the current, show how important it is now, bring the contemporary and show the past. So I juxtapose both of those together for this painting. Um, and then the counter, oh gosh, the black and white. So many times growing up, I watched uh, Eyes on the Prize and you know, it, it, it's, you know, I, for some reason I just fell, fell in love with history then. Seeing what my mother and grandmother and grandfathers went through to have us, to, for me to be here today. And moving, now I live in the South. And I live, actually, my house is on an old plantation that they turned into a subdivision. And every day I look out of that window and I think, oh my gosh, you know, who looked at that tree? Who, which one of my ancestors might have been on this plantation? Or looked at, across that street, at this tree line. What did that tree line mean to them? Was it a border? It, for me, it's just greenery, it's fresh air. I see hawks. It was at a border for them. And so when I do get a, a chance to look at, to, to go back and paint once again, history, I just, I, I show that this, you know, she's being heckled and she's being, you know, even with the military, they're looking straight ahead as if it's nothing can happen. Nothing, they can't stop them. They're just there to stop them from violent, being violent, but not mental violence that's going on. They can still juror and talk all this stuff to her. But then I have, what is it all about? And it's about books. It's about education. And so I highlighted that one part uh, of the book, Red. And that's how the importance of that fire of education and understanding that we get from, um, from especially looking back and seeing how it was. That we still have a long way to go, but we can say how it was. And then we use our history to move forward. The picture with Elgin Baylor sitting out the game where he is seated on the bench with his teammates. And again, that quiet dignity. He's wearing a white shirt, a necktie, like so many of the other peaceful protesters, impeccably dressed for the occasion. And Jen, you write, sometimes you have to sit down to stand up. Was that a recurring theme for Mr. Baylor? This incident in West Virginia, and first of all, it's so funny that you should say that, because right before we got on this call, I was really staring at that, at that exact page and just marveling at Frank's work there, capturing that, that moment. In I love it. But to get back to your question, he had uh, been turned away before when they had played in, in Carolina, and he had said to himself and to another teammate, you know, if this happens again, I'm going to do something. And uh, so when they got to West Virginia, he was turned away at the hotel. The whole team then went to a hotel where everyone was welcome and then he was turned away at restaurants and he had to eat in his room. And that uh, player that's pictured sitting next to him, Hot Rod Hunley, the white player, they were, they were good friends. And Rod had come to him that night because Rod Hundley was a West Virginia native. This was his home court here. He was from this area. He, all his family was there. He told his friends to come. 
He was very excited that they would get to see him, but also Elgin Baylor, who was the star of the team. And when he saw that Elgin wasn't dressing, he tried to convince him to play. And Elgin said, Rod, I'm a human being. I'm not an animal let out for the show. I want to be treated like a human being. And Rod said, you know what, you're right, don't play. And um, so, you know, that whole moment then has to be, as a picture book author, it's really like writing poetry. You have to condense, 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 and try and capture a lot of information in a way that is effective emotionally for young readers. So sitting down to stand up is a phrase that I actually checked with the Library of Congress on uh, the origins. It's been used several times. There's a footnote in the back about it, but peaceful protesting sitting down has been used across cultures. And it's just a wonderful paradox, a wonderful verbal play. You know, it's sitting down is really standing up. And I just felt that that epitomized his quiet protest uh, that ended up being very, very effective. I wasn't surprised when I went to your website after I read the book to learn that you are also a poet, because I think the use of these refrains, people stopped what they were doing, they stopped to watch, and then the fans noticed the newspapers noticed. You use these recurring themes and refrains. And I think that the combination of your poetic text with Frank's beautiful illustrations, particularly the way you capture motion, Frank, motion and emotion, it just makes for a marvelous book. I hope that many young adult and adult readers will partake in the story of Elgin Baylor. Oh, well, thank you. That's very, very generous. We, I, I, I feel very, very fortunate to, to work with Frank and uh, it's a small miracle when you see words and, and uh, paintings come together in something like this is it is I think oh I know Frank I, we feel like it's a celebration when you find an individual who is underknown and has done so much it's a privilege to be a part of it and it's just a joy to see it come together so that more people know about him author Jennifer Bryant and illustrator Frank Morrison their book for young readers is Above the Rim How Elgin Baylor Changed Basketball. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Cake Alikes is a new cake competition series on Discovery Plus. The show challenges bakers to create life-sized cake replicas of famous celebrities. And two Atlanta bakers, Christina Bjorn and Tasha Taylor, are a part of that competition. They are the dynamic duo known as Bake Girl Magic. I spoke with them earlier this month via Zoom, and first asked Christina how they met. We met 
at a baking competition a few years ago, I was actually competing and Tasha was one of the judges because um, she's a well-known baker in the Atlanta area. So, you know, it was, it was no brainer that they'd pick her to be a judge. And I said, oh my gosh, <laughs> she has hair just like me. We're of like-mindedness because my hair was purple at that time. And Tasha's hair is always purple, no matter what. And so we just um, instantly kind of had that connection, that bond. And I actually said to her, you know, let's go to lunch. Let's talk, you know, let's, let's get, you know, acquainted in the cake world and, and you know, possibly develop a, a relationship from there. And it just, from there was everything. Like, she's just like, like a sister to me at this point. Well, I'm curious to hear from each of you how you learned to bake. Tasha? Well, my baking experience came from basically a hobby. I would do little like baby showers or birthday parties for my friends' kids. And they were like, well, you should actually do this professionally, like and turn it into a business and see where it goes. And here we are. Here you are indeed. Christina, what's your baking or cooking background? So my background is much like a lot of people, you know, grandma in the kitchen, my nana um, started me off baking biscuits and everything when I was little. And it was so much fun. My mom always talks about, yeah, she's a baker now, but she used to be in the kitchen when she was little. <laughs> I'd come home and smell all kinds of cinnamon and vanilla. So it's always been a hobby of mine. And I just, I was, you know, like it's something I would do to kind of just, you know, pass the time, relieve stress and things like that. And then my husband cut to the future. <laughs> took some of it to work because he was like, you're stressed baking here in the kitchen. Um, I need to take some of this to work because I can't keep this here. We'll eat it and we'll be, we won't be able to fit out the door. So <laughs> he took it to some of his coworkers and they loved it. And they were just like, oh, did she sell this? Is she? And was, he said, yeah, she does now. <laughs> the business uh -huh. kind, of, kind of spiraled out of there. Oh, that is great. Christina, you are the owner of Not Your Nana's Bakery. And Tasha, you own Sugar High Sweets, Eats, and Treats. How do you both manage your separate businesses as well as bake girl magic? I think managing our separate businesses just comes very easily. I feel like we have a mutual respect for the fact that we're both entrepreneurial Black women in the Atlanta area. And knowing that, you know, neither one of us wants to outshine the other, we'd rather be in a supportive role. And so we know we can lean on each other when needed, but we also know that there, we have our own individual priorities. And just having that mutual respect and the communication, I think, makes it work really well. And then also with the Big Girl Magic Partnership, being able to do competitions and shows and things like that, um, and, and in local events as well, is also a priority that we like to highlight. Yeah, I've been mentioning lots of names, each of your bakeries, each of your businesses. Would you tell us a bit about the partnership, Bake Girl Magic, what that's comprised of? Absolutely. So Bake Girl Magic is a sisterhood right now comprised of myself and Tasha. And I will, I will hint that it may be expanding and growing. But it is started. It is started with the two of us as a partnership within the cake community, showing unity and growth and support with each other in doing competitions and doing events where we can team up and be a team to do those competitions and to do different things in the community. It really is a play on words from the terminology "black girl magic," which is a lot about empowering women of color and specifically black women. 
um, doing great things and doing entrepreneurial things with a, with a sort of, I don't know how to say it, I guess sort of flair and just swagger really <laughs> that that is unmatched. And it's, it's something that we're very proud of. And so that's something that we take as Black women on business owners and put it into specifically the cake industry, trying to create something, a space um, for, I think, an underserved demographic. Hmm. I see on the Big Girl Magic Instagram page that you both have created some very elaborate cakes from a blues-themed cake creation to a cake in the shape of a tiger. How do you approach creating such intricate cakes? Do you have to draw it out or do you have stencils? Well, most of the creations are free-handed. We will have an inspiration photo, but all the ideas come from our clients. Our clients will give us an idea and uh, freedom to put our creativity into the creations as much as we can. And we just go with the flow. Wow. Most recently, you won Netflix's holiday baking competition, Sugar Rush Christmas. What was the final challenge that landed your win? Our, the theme for that episode was the Nutcracker, um, which is the very you know popular traditional Christmas play. And the third round was a cake round where we had to create a cake embodying the mouse king from that play. And so uh, we did a structure where we had a cheese cannon and the mouse king's riding in on the scene with the cheese cannon and kind of flipping the turntables on the nutcracker and kind of taking over, making some cheese destruction all over you know, the Nutcracker's Christmas and our cake flavor was actually our, our very popular white velvet with a blueberry um, cream cheese mascarpone filling. And that, <laughs> that was what kind of cinched the victory because I think one of, the, one of our favorite judges, I know mine, um, Adriano Zumbo said, you know, it came down to taste for him. And that was one of the highest compliments I think we could have possibly received. Absolutely. Although I think it's pretty clever to make the Mouse King triumphant. I mean, yeah. move over Ratatouille, huh? <laughs> Who needs that ballet with the Nutcracker? Let the mice take over. Exactly. You know, because everybody loves cheering for an underdog. And that was kind of a, a, a symbiotic theme for us. You know, we were the first time competitors, a lot of other um, people we were competing against on that show had done competitions before and won them. And they also had, um, you know, been to culinary school. Tasha and I are both self-taught. And if, if that term means that you just basically aren't formally trained in a culinary school, and we, we gleaned over experience, I guess I like to call it on the job training. And so it was kind of symbiotic that we were the quote unquote underdogs too. So I think that that theme and using that idea for our cake kind of spoke to us. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, how would you describe cake-alikes? It's hard to describe because it was the first time that, and you know, every we've ever seen a composition like this. Where you, uh, we built a six-foot figure from all cake and edible elements over the course of 14 oh, hours. Unbelievable. So the, the premise for cake-alikes, this series, is that you create life-size likenesses of celebrities in cake. Yeah, and you're competing against two, two other teams of two. 
And so each of you have your own specific design you have to create just from a picture. They don't give you measurements. There's no, you know, you just kind of have to do your initial skill set and from the picture that they give you to generate and create that. Okay, you had quite a lot to work with in that your cake version was of flavor flavor. Such an interesting character. First, for those who aren't familiar, how would you describe his, well, first, who he is, as well as his style? Flavor Flav is larger than life. He is the number one hype man in hip-hop to date. He's known as from the group Public Enemy. And I guess, I don't know if I should, I should describe what a hype man is, but he just gets the crowd pumping, the energy going. And, you know, hip-hop is already a high, energetic, and intense form of music so you can imagine he's the guy that just keeps the party going gets the party started and so he's the one he's like kind of outrageous he has these crazy uh horn helmets he wears a giant <laughs> clock he's synonymous with like bling and the clocks and the grills so it's just he's like he is a larger than life character in itself to capture so how did you capture that in cake we tried our best to copy the picture to a t because i know once we put all the elements from the photo on the cake it will come to life itself mm-hmm. yeah really focusing on the details because he was holding like this chain um and so that i don't want to give too much away <laughs> but using like the tools that were available i mean that's the beauty of being a cake artist is that you have some of the most interesting things that to play with like modeling chocolate and gold leaf and that was really important when you have someone who has a gold tooth <laughs> or gold grill so you know we're able to play in things that you know growing up as kids was just kind of, that came natural. You know, you play with Play-Doh, you play with all kind of construction and craft items and doing competitions like this allows the inner kid to come out and just play and create and use your imagination to make what you see in front of you come to life. Yeah, and he has sort of a trademark neck piece. He's always rocking a clock, an enormous clock. It's so interesting to talk to him because he has meaning behind each of those clocks. He has like a sentimental thing that he's, you know, when he's worn him to a different event, there's just like a story. He always has a story for, I think, almost every like piece of wardrobe. It's not just, you know, kind of thrown together. For him, it's real personal. And that was really amazing to learn. Well, that is part of his creative expression. What is the best kept secret, if you would, for making these tall cakes sturdy? Definitely the structure. If your structure is not sound and secure. Okay, but you have, you can't put, you know, a life-size cake in the oven. How much assembly does it take? I mean, that's something we really, I feel like you have to just watch the show for that. You know, if I'm being honest with you, that's one of those things you got to just kind of see how it goes. Because to see it is to believe it. Yeah. Now, being two successful Black female entrepreneurs in Atlanta, how do you hope to inspire the next generation of bakers? Well, one of my mottos is to just do it. If it's something you see or if it's something you see another person do that's inspirational to you, reach out, see if they can give you any pointers, any ideas, any tips, and go do it. The best way to learn and get experience is to just go do it. Try. Yep. 
I agree. And then one of my philosophies is the thinking about the bread aisle analogy where someone will say, I can't do it because somebody else is already doing it. Well, a good friend of mine told me about, you know, they read, go down the bread aisle and you'll see just because there's one brand of bread, there's like numerous brands of bread, you know, just because it's already out there and someone else is doing it doesn't mean that you can't do it too. Because whatever, you know, God put in you is uniquely your talents and they need to be expressed. And so that's something that, that you're the missing ingredient, whether somebody else is doing it or not, it doesn't matter. They, they're not doing it the way you would do it. Christina Bjorn and Tasha Taylor formed the Atlanta-based baking duo known as Bake Girl Magic. Christina is the owner of Not Your Nana's Bakery, and Tasha is the owner of Sugar High Sweet Eats and Treats. You can see them on the new cake competition series, Cake Alikes, on Discovery+. Plus. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily celebration of arts and culture. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also find our archived stories at wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.